This is somebody else's podcast, and I always like to be deferential and not host when it's somebody else's podcast. It's a thing I have to remember. (laughs) I'm Maya Grant. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff that you love. What are we ruining today? I think everything. I mean, I think that what we have to do is catch up with our listeners on kind of where we've been. Yeah. And why we haven't been. Yeah, it's been a couple weeks since we put out an episode. Yeah, and there are reasons. And I think those reasons are probably things you guys are experiencing too. We have a special guest to join us for this conversation. Very special. Hello, good to be here. This is Guy Branham. (laughs) Friend of the show and friend. Hello. It's exciting to be here on The Sauce. Uh, longtime listener, second time guest. <laughs> In this episode, I guess what we're ruining is 2022. I, I kind of think we're ruining just now, the now. I don't know that we're ruining it. I think we're just trying to fucking understand what is going on. Yeah. And um, in order to do that, I think drinking is an important piece of the picture. Very much so. (laughs) So let's share how we're doing and what we are drinking. Guy, would you like to start? Okay, so Rebecca Cohen, my best friend, showing up to stay at my house, I looked upon my crowded bar and was like, "What, what do I want to see like leverage in a way that I can't leverage? So I said, Rebecca, I would like a Calvados cocktail. And what I have here is um, a Jack Rose that Rebecca made me with my Calvados. And um, I had like a Lieber and Company real grenadine. Actual grenadine. That I purchased for my Caribbean-themed Seder three long years ago (laughs) when I was making rum punch. Uh, But that grenadine, when I started to pour it, I had to question how old it was. Or whether that's how grenadine is supposed to smell. I just, it, you know, I'm accustomed to the dyed, presumably very cherry flavored stuff that's totally artificial. But the real stuff has like a bit of a plummy quality to it. Yeah, it, like it's very nice. Lieber and Company, um, like they make like a passion fruit syrup. They make a wonderful ginger syrup. And just the notion of having grenadine that isn't, there are those things like, like the idea of maraschino cherries that like used to be a cool Italian thing and are now just that like industry standard thing. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, fresh wasabi. Yes. Like, I don't know that I've had real wasabi. Um, so back to the topic of the cocktail. <laughs> I said it was a Jack Rose that you made me. It is a Jack Rose, which I can't remember was lemon juice and grenadine with the Calvados. Cal- yes. Yeah. And then I also made Maya a cocktail, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a second. But how are you, Guy? Let's also mention that. I mean, the thing is, is I am honestly, it's lovely to have you and Matt in my home. I got to go to a dinner party at Maya's house last night, which was wonderful. But the, the theme of this episode is very appropriate because... I am also in that place of just sort of like, where are we going? What are we doing? What is this world? How do you even prepare for the next thing when everything is... It's difficult. We'll get into that shortly. And for context, listeners, yes, I am in Los Angeles physically here, actually recording in person with Maya, Uh which has never happened before. It has never happened. We actually haven't done this. And we have Guy here. We're all sitting around a table 
actually together, which is really exciting. And oh, we had geez. dinner, an amazing dinner at Maya's last night. And so how am I doing? I am hungover from last <laughs> night's dinner because it's been a few weeks since I've had anything to drink because friends, Omicron got me at the end of 2021. So the actual days of sickness were not many. Uh, and I'm currently wearing multiple trackers because I joined a post-COVID NIH study, which I actually got multiple listeners who have had COVID on our Discord channel to also reach out to the NIH and sign up for the study. What are they tracking? They're tracking heart rate and temperature. I'm wearing under my arm this weird temperature tracker that looks like a lightning bolt. I'm wearing this bio strap, which is like a... It looks like a Fitbit. It takes all of my data, my oxygen levels and all of that. And it's all going to the NIH right now. But it means that I'm... Uh, I'm like just hungover. So we'll see if I'm going to be sharp or really, really dull today. Well, I think if you just get that cocktail down, it'll help a lot. <laughs> I have a very low alcohol tolerance. One is probably all I can do. What am I drinking? So yours is a honeymoon, which mm. is Calvados Benedictine triple sec lemon juice and my favorite egg white. You know I love egg white. In it's cocktail. delightful. Great. It's so nice I'm to have a real like cocktail. To me, there's nothing more sophisticated than somebody who knows what to do with Benedictine. Yeah. Absolutely. I would not consider myself that. But one thing I discovered about Guy's bar is that he has all of the things that I never have. Like when I'm looking at <laughs> cocktail recipes, I'm like, oh, can't make that. I don't have Benedictine. I don't have Dubonnet. I don't have Calvados. Like Dubonnet. I never have those things. Oh, my God. He has all of them. He has port. You have port in your bar. It's what a is, nice one, too. What is a, What is Benedictine? Like it's some kind of a brandy? Like what's it's, it's related to brandy somehow. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that like friars came up with in the Middle Ages to like make you feel better d when you're sick. Like it's just too many <laughs> botanicals in brandy. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Rebecca, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I am drinking an anti, which is Calvados, Dubonnet, Triple Sec, and bitters, though, instead of triple sec, I think I used the orange curacao that guy brought back from a trip to curacao. The Jewiest of the Caribbean islands. <laughs> like, far and away the Did Jewiest you know this, of the Caribbean Maya? islands. <laughs> Do you want to briefly explain that? Just Yeah, yeah, uh, I think you have to. I mean, it's part of uh, the Dutch Antilles. Um, the, the Dutch claimed it. It has a very good port. And so, like, they couldn't grow anything there. So Jews went to use the port to trade things. Um, and so now they have one of the, like, seven sand floor synagogues in the Caribbean. Um, and, like, a, a very, a still very present Jewish community. And how are they related to the liqueur? We all know. Oh, so... <laughs> the, the Dutch prompt prompt the the Dutch it was either the Dutch or the Spanish tried to bring oranges there to grow oranges because it was somebody in Europe being like it's a Caribbean island it should be able to do that failing to realize it was so dry it was never going to happen so then the oranges like went feral and there were only these weird these weird oranges that never got orange that stayed green that were able to survive in the dry dry country and some Jew was there and was like we have to do something with this and took the rind of it and was flavoring you know like uh cane alcohol that they were making all over um with it and managed to successfully like turn 
this like crap product that didn't have value into something you could sell the resilience of our people in so many places is astounding. I have to to say when you say some Jew it reminds me of the story my mom has about the guy who sold eggs in Haifa who would like come to their house selling eggs. He had these huge hands and they would fill it with all these eggs for the week (laughs) and my grandmother just called him the Jew. That's, that's humorous for an Israeli, like the Jew. Could you be more Polish. specific? She was Polish, but she was like, "Oh yeah, the Jews here." Like that—that that is funny. But when did they add the blue food coloring? Was that like in the seventies? In like the fifties. Okay. <laughs> Marketing scheme. It's blue like the ocean. It should right. make you think of the ocean. It does. So that's my cocktail. The but how are you doing though? I mean, it's mixed, I'm going to tell you. I, I'm very happy to be in California and seeing you all in person and seeing my family that I've seen so rarely. I'm here for a sad reason. My Auntie Mary passed away, so we came out for the funeral. But also, Auntie Mary wouldn't want us to be sad. <laughs> she would want us to be good to each other and celebrate life. So. And drink. Would she want us to drink? I mean, she would love that we're drinking. She was not a big drinker, but... Uh, she was. She loved how cheap the wines are at Trader Joe's, <laughs> and, and she was always de- she was delighted by anything that made everyone happy. You know, mm. my dad comes over on Thanksgiving, makes cocktails for everyone. She couldn't have been happier. That was stuff she loved. The one sort of like Rebecca's family thing I got to experience was Auntie Mary's 80th birthday, That's right. and it was like seeing Rebecca and Devorah in this context was amazing and expanded my understanding of both of them. But also (laughs) watching Auntie Mary be truly like the life of the party and the belle of the ball and truly like actualizing at a party where everyone was having the best time and everyone was familying as though it were a verb. Like watching Devorah family at all of your family was astounding. Well, she's, that's Devorah's like one of her superpowers. She remembers every family member, every second, third cousin, however distant she can tell you how they're related and like who they are and what they do and who their kids are. And like that, I I feel like I always assumed part of the reason I couldn't do that is because I just relied on her. Like I never had to grow that muscle. Well, I mean, one of the things that was kind of fun about it is you're an outgoing, engaging person and like, you were a little bit a brooding teen. <laughs> like... <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Maya's laughing a little too hard at that. But but uh, yeah, that that family is so warm and welcoming. And like you showed up, most people hadn't met you prior to that event, and you were immediately part of the family. You know, it, like you show up to somebody else's family event, you're like, what the fuck am I doing here? And like. Everyone made me feel so at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, then can we can we just toast? Oh, sure. Aunt Mary to Auntie Mary to Auntie Mary to Auntie Mary. The whole theme of that 80th birthday party was Hawaiian, as was that like the funeral. I wore a Hawaiian like a light blue dress with yellow flowers on it. Like everyone was encouraged. Auntie basically produced her own funeral because she went into hospice care in like June and she didn't pass till November. So there was a lot of time for her to talk about what she wanted. And one of the things she was very clear about is she wanted everyone to wear like their Aloha shirts and bright floral dresses. And everyone did. And it was, it was lovely. It was, it was like her party, her birthday party, but, but sadder. (laughs) 
Anyway, that is kind of of a tone, of a piece tonally, perhaps, with some of the melancholy I think we're feeling generally. Well, okay, so this is, this is what I want to get to, and I think we're going to start with a little straight talk between me and Rebecca. Okay, you want to go there? Yeah, I'm going to go there. Fine. Okay, guys. So, Rebecca has been super flaky. <laughs> like, just getting our shit together to record has been, like, really hard. And I'm like, what is going on? You know, I, I know with the COVID and the this and, and are we open and aren't we open? We're used to a closed world. Now we have to get used to an open world and everybody's in transition and it's all fucking weird. But I still a little bit was like, what is this? And last night at dinner, Rebecca was like, well, I just feel like things are so weird right now. I want to talk about the trauma of the Trump years. I think we're only finally. And I was like, oh, that's why we haven't been recording because we're in such a fucked up time where the trauma of the past five years, six years even, mm -hmm. is starting to kind of unfold with us that the idea of ruining stuff that people love, breaking down politics. I mean, when we started this, it was a year into Trump's presidency. It, our first episode together was about Hillary Clinton's autobiography and, and the chaos and the mess. And I was like, oh, the, well, we have to do an episode about that. The reason we haven't been recording is because our sort of purpose feels a bit weird and murky right now <laughs> it is weird i think the omicron thing really has been difficult because of what you're talking about like we were doing everything right and then it stops mattering in a big way so um i was on december 23rd i had my car packed up with all of like I am from a mixed family, so we have always had Christmas, even though if you ask me, I say I'm a Jew. Um, I was headed home for Christmas, and I got a text message from a guy I had hooked up with who said, I have COVID, and my mom isn't vaccinated. And that was just sort of like, no Christmas, no seeing my niece for one of the two to three times I see her near. Actually, I've seen her more this year. But just like, um, that weird feeling is just sort of like for me is so much tied up in that specifically of just sort of like the things you think were going to happen aren't going to happen but there is sort of like this this much longer game of mm -hmm. like you know the, the the long thing for me is just i haven't really known what to do as a stand-up since trump got elected okay. I, I i'm sorry to cut you off i want to talk about that but i, I here's what i think we should do i want to sort of back up uh, mm -hmm. to what Maya opened with about my flakiness. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about Trump drama. Mm -hmm. And then we can sort of follow that forward to talking about Omicron and, and COVID and how that's fucking everything up too. So um, regarding that, uh, I have a lot of issues that are sort of layered on top of each other. And the biggest of those I've talked about, I think multiple times, which is ADHD. Uh, I have trouble getting things done. And it's been an ongoing process of trying to figure out skills and tools I can use to try to compensate for that, to try to accommodate my challenges and still get things done. And um, for whatever reason, basically starting in September of last year, I, I really started to sort of fall off of that. I, like I stopped doing my scheduling and my planning 
And I would have like a couple weeks where I'd get back on top of it and then it would stop again. And around the same time, we ran out of money to pay an editor for the podcast. <laughs> so that came on back onto my plate, which was fine. But somehow I have found in the past month or two, like I just can't get myself to get started on anything. Like I'll get up in the morning and like I'll get up in a timely fashion and get and be ready to get started. But somehow I never wind up sitting down at the computer and doing work. Like it doesn't happen. And the one time like it did happen is when Maya, you and I had a Zoom meeting. You were like, I will get on top of you. And I was relying more and more on you to reach out to me and be like, hey, when are we going to record? Hey, have you, have you edited this? Like, what's the and, status and so, of this? And so I was very much in like, Rebecca, if you're not into doing this anymore, that just it's, let me know. It's not and that. It's fine. I know, I know. But that was, so that was sort of the, yeah. like, we were definitely uh, struggling. Yeah. And, and with ADHD, it's weird because it doesn't matter how important something is to me or how much I want to get it done. That does not translate into the action of getting started on it, much less like continuing with it and following through and finishing it. But I, I just realized like a week or two ago, it just sort of hit me. Here's the thought process, actually. It was, I, I was thinking, maybe I need to get off my antidepressant because I do feel so disengaged from everything. And the reason I went on the antidepressant in the first place, well, there were two reasons. One was that um, I went to my psychiatric nurse practitioner and I uh, was like, I don't think the Adderall's working. You know, maybe I'm not on the correct medication. And she was like, well, that could be anxiety and depression, which you clearly have. Maybe if we take care of that, we'll see it wasn't really that the Adderall wasn't doing whatever. And I've been on the antidepressant for a couple of years now. And here I'm in this place where I, I don't feel like executive functioning wise, I, I feel like I'm sliding backwards, like at a really uh, uh, steep slope. So, okay, that didn't work. Maybe I should just get off this now and um, reconsider. And in that thought process, I remembered the other reason that I got on antidepressants was Kavanaugh. It was the Kavanaugh hearings. That was the <laughs> moment when I sort of, I had prior to that been like, I don't need mood meds. I don't need mood meds. I'm fine. And that was the moment when I was like, I, don't, I can't control this stuff. And it is killing me. I need to do something. And so now that has passed, and maybe I will be okay not to, you know, I, are, by the way, definitely recognize the danger of, well, the antidepressants are working, so I think I don't need them. I get that. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think it really might be there were these external factors, and um, they are gone. But the, this whole thought process led me to realize the extent to which what I'm experiencing is the aftermath of the trauma of everything from 2015 through 2020. That that whole experience of Trump is not, first of all, it's not gone because he is still around and th those people are still around and they're still fucking shit up in many, many ways. But also there's that way that when you get out of a prolonged traumatic experience, you're not just immediately like, phew, <laughs> I'm better now, it's over. It's actually sometime later that you finally are able to process what has happened. A and 
experience some of the some of the pain and and experience the actual trauma that prior when it was happening you were on adrenaline when it was yes. happening it was this constant constant rush of things it was ongoing you were surviving you were in survival mode and when you're no longer then everything hits you no i have to tell you i've had a similar thing with my mood meds where in 2018 i went on prozac for two reasons one of which is um i had a very terrible professional setback um which sort of was very disappointing and I'd really built up to this thing and didn't happen. But the other one is climate change. And I would wake up at three in the morning every night. And I knew that the Prozac was working when I saw the Malibu fires and didn't immediately want to commit suicide. I was like, oh, the, the Prozac's working. I'm just looking at the entire Malibu burn. And this summer I went off them because I realized like, oh, I, it was a very specific depressive episode and I've had my emotions back and it's really nice to have my emotions back. I'm encouraged to hear you say that. I remember the first time after I went off it, my son was kind of a disrespectful asshole to me and I I got so mad and I was like, (laughs) oh, I'm off Prozac. Like I got mad. It felt good to be mad. And the other day I I didn't get a grant and and I just felt like, oh, and I, I sobbed. And it was wonderful to sob. And so I realized like, I'm actually good. I'm not in any kind of dangerous place not being on it. If I need it, I know it's very effective. But I don't think I realized till I just went off it this summer, how much it had cushioned me from my feelings. And it's been great to feel my feelings. And by the way, this is in no way telling people to get off their meds at all, at all, at all. I mean, I can only get off them because I know I can go back on them and because I'm seeing my psychiatrist every three months to check in on me to make sure that I'm not, I'm not telling people to go off their meds. I'm saying for me, um, that critical moment that we were in that made me go on them after managing my depression, my mood stuff in other ways until I was 43, um, has passed. And so now I'm getting to feel my feelings and there's a lot of feelings to feel. I think one of the things about the trauma of the past seven years is that um, there was no singing brand new day at like January 6th, 2021. There was no, we're out of this because... I mean, one of the things about COVID in the last two years is that as a person who has experienced like clinical chemical depression, just seeing everyone in the whole world experience situational depression, it is depression. You can't do as many things. You can't go as many places. You can't see as many people. All of the things that happen to people who are depressed are now being forced upon everyone in the world. And it leads to... Uh, like a a chemical feedback loop that like puts you in this place. I have to say I'm somebody who has also had very wonderful experiences on Prozac. It saved me at times when I needed to be saved. And it is something that I left when it had done the job that it needed to do. And I felt that it was, uh, I mean, getting in the way of having the bigger feelings that I needed to have, for the work that I do, if that makes any sense. I mean, it was just a thing of like, I had a conversation with my therapist. This was, you know, many years ago, I think like 10 years ago, but it was just sort of like, I'm not writing stand up, you know, I'm like not 
doing the thing that I need to be doing. And we talked about it. And then I talked to my psychiatrist and we were like, I'll go off of it. Um, and it's been good. And the best thing is, is like knowing that it's there when you need it. And also I think, um, antidepressants have taught me so many lessons that are still applicable, not with them in my system, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. Actually. I once talked to, a a peer in the teaching fellows program, the New York city teaching fellows, which is how I became a teacher. Uh, and he was talking about having taken Adderall or Ritalin when he was a teen or in college and he said it taught him how to focus like after taking it he sort of like understood what it felt like to sit and listen to a lecture and then after a while didn't need it anymore which is not uncommon for juvenile patients with ADHD so yeah I think we have had that similar experience obviously there are many people for whom they can't write without the antidepressants. Right. That's and that's yeah. something I remember uh, I was talking about The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon, which is an it's called The Noonday Demon, an Atlas of Depression. It is a fantastic book. It won the National Book Award. I recommend it for everybody. But he talked about like going off the meds. He's like, I don't go off my glasses. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right, you know, right. Like, yeah. And I think there are some people for whom it really is their glasses. Like they're not going to all of a sudden have perfect vision. They're going to have to be on these meds. Um, and I feel like that's, the, I mean, thank God that they are there and we have access to them. But I feel like what we're all talking about right now is this way. And when you were talking about adrenaline, and we were talking about this a little last night, how like in the Trump years, and I really count the year that he was running. Yeah. No, um, 2015 was fucked up. Um, it felt like every that day... That was 2016, because he wouldn't have been he was, inaugurated. Yeah, he wasn't inaugurated until then. Um, there is a way that it was like burning out all of your synapses, where every day there was news that was like, he can't go this low. And he'd like, oh, he can't go lower than this. And then he would. And like every day was like that. And it was like burning out your adrenal glands like yeah. I feel like that's what it's like people who do too much molly and then they can never like release they have no serotonin left I feel like our adrenal glands are like burned out yeah the whatever uh receptors that serotonin attaches to they can't do it anymore uh, well I mean the, the thing that is like freakiest and scariest to me is the ways that it was satisfying and the ways that like the things that he was giving you, if this makes any sense, were well-written. Like, not what he was saying was well-written, but just sort of the ridiculousness of... They were things that you would not take in a movie because that's, like, too ridiculous. And there, yep. there was just, like, all of these moments that were just like, Jesus Christ, what? And I feel like that was so pointed and poignant that we don't know how to return to a world of sensibility. Like, yeah. Even though, yeah. remember the relief when he first had covid and then was kicked off twitter like it was that, so quiet we talked about, we talked it, about it on the it show like, that that <sighs> like weekend when there was no trump and it was this like yeah <laughs> taking a breath and we talked about it in terms of trauma and trauma suffers in that way like suddenly when it's when it takes a pause you have a moment to be like oh shit what have i been doing what have i been experiencing it makes me think of when i was teaching in in brooklyn when i was teaching in <laughs> very high need schools and the students were going through this all the time. This was their experience of life, daily trauma. And it fucks up your system. I've read a lot about what happens to your system in terms of like 
the fight or flight response, as as it's colloquially called, you know, like when that is constantly turned on, it messes you up and it makes it impossible. That's why it's the, the students couldn't concentrate. You couldn't expect them to sit down and focus on math or something like that. They, they biologically were not in a place where that was feasible. It was so funny when you went to a school that did not have children who were as high need or experiencing as much difficulty because you were in a place where you were like I don't know I'm just always filling out permission slips like <laughs> before that like when it was everything's a fire you learned how to put out fires it's true it's so true when I really when I started taking Xanax at work <laughs> oh, I started Christ. yeah like I started needing to take like to get through the day that was when I was at the school that was functioning, where the kids were fucking great, the administration was supportive. I had I had uh, paraprofessionals and aides in the classroom to help me out, and I was like, they don't need me. I would be absent, come in, and everyone was like, oh, they did their homework, the sub gave them these assignments. What the fuck am I doing here? That's when it got, like, because... I had been accustomed to constantly putting out fires. I had been accustomed to being in that state myself of everything's an emergency. So now I want to talk about how coming out of the Trump trauma Mm. has been and and the uh, various factors that have complicated dealing with the trauma. Uh, One of which... I think the most prominent of which is COVID, but then also you have things like the January 6th thing and Fox News still being there and that, and I'm using Fox News as a shorthand for all kinds yes. of things. Yes. And that all being there. And, 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 and there may be some other factors I'm not thinking of that are making it well, difficult. I'm sorry, climate, the fact that there is a giant fire in Colorado in uh. the winter, like what? Like, yeah. I think the fact that beyond the, the, terrors that we are making for ourselves like i mean climate is a terror that we have made for ourselves but like it's something that we need to be figuring out um as uh, adam mckay is trying so hard to remind us but i would say another thing that makes this really hard is that like so much of the american economy is storytelling and ha- like has been for a while that we tell stories of great men, white men, <laughs> who save us from situations. I and love. I'm just. I'm so hit. White. I, I'm stealing white that from men. Naomi Ekparagin. Oh, so uh, but uh, Joe Biden is not like Barack Obama or even a nineteen, a fresh nineteen ninety three Bill Clinton leading us out of this situation. You would have felt like you had a charismatic figure to attach yourself to like a minister for the healing and we do not have a minister for this healing we are all having to do it on our own in our own ways that's a great point like i don't think biden's been doing a terrible job i think he's been quite all right possibly better than i might have uh, expected or predicted i have to say in terms of judges fucking rad because not only is he putting a bunch of judges in He's putting people as judges who would never be judges, like people who had been federal public defenders. Oh, like really? not just people, yeah, like a lot of black women who were federal public defenders That's are fantastic. joining the bench. It's fucking amazing. 
and he's putting it, he's put in more judges by this point in any presidential administration of any president, for even like, including Trump. Because yeah, yeah, Trump yeah. was like, yes, yes, proving them he with is a rubber putting stamp. those judges in, and they aren't just like judges who are like. They're Democrats, but they're corporate lawyers, so the people aren't worried about them. No, <laughs> he's oh, putting in like that's great. It's, it's beautiful, but yeah, he is he is not that um, he it, is not that charismatic. The, he's not that figurehead. No. It's having the person, yeah, who like Obama wasn't Obama in terms of like how 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 he actually governed. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he was as a as a public figure as a, a someone that people could look to and he was charismatic. And, and then he also had Michelle. So yeah. It was like that double charisma where it was like, she's just. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had like, Obama was like a big head of state. And then Trump yeah. was something of a shape even different than that. But he was big. But he was big. And like Biden is just being a head of government and is really trying to give us like, old school i mean when i think about biden the thing that i think about is conrad adenauer which is um after hitler fell and the like occupying powers are like what the fuck do we do with west germany they ended up basically getting the highest ranking conservative who had not been a nazi who was this impossibly old man, Conrad Adenauer, who was also Catholic, which in German senses sort of rem removed him from being part of what was the worst. It, it, let's not talk about the culture conf. The point is, is that Biden is is sort of being this like figure that is trying to be less polarizing. Well, it's and interesting. And, and so it's like, and then is he what we need or what we need is for it to like calm down. It reminds me of like, you know, when a band puts out their big double album, that's like their biggest hit. And afterwards, what do you do to follow that up? Maybe you do an album of like acoustic, acoustic covers. Yeah. <laughs> but the, totally. Just so, like yeah. No, but, but the trouble, the, the trouble is acoustic covers don't stop climate change and they that's don't right, right. and they don't make sure that the midterms well, like, like, aren't lost. There we go. That's why I thought it was very interesting what you said about him not being like a, a, a leadership figure because I would have said a year and a couple months ago, oh, that's all I want. All I want is a bureaucrat who will do government correctly. I just want someone who, who will be quiet and not outrageous and will respect the basic mores and and norms that that we've always gone by and do the thing because you know Biden was the one who Obama would like send to the hill yeah 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 the like, one, yeah. I want the guy who's like the one who actually goes to the hill and gets yeah. people to fucking have a conversation also <laughs> when your grandma dies you need your mom to explain to you what it means and i think the thing that we're missing uh, is mm. That person who feels in charge, who can like, yeah, give us a, a moral. But that's a that's a narrative thing. It's a cultural yeah. thing. Yeah, which yeah, he wasn't ever gonna be able to do. But I will say, I think he may be doing even less than I would have predicted. But but here's the thing that's interesting about that in terms of narrative. And by the way, I think this is about to be an amazing transition. But you know, that's just is we'll that see how it goes. <laughs> So we don't have this narrative figure. We have this completely bifurcated, splintered, uh, 
American narrative where we're not watching the same news. I think at this point, a lot of us have lost what our news source is because it's all splintering and whatever. But at the same time, because of COVID and because of how completely isolated we still are and because of Omicron, we are consuming media and we are consuming stories and narrative in in this way that is so aggressive in this way that is like the percentage of life that it's taken. And even before COVID people were watching a lot of fucking TV and streaming or whatever. But I feel like we are completely absorbed in narrative, but it's not this other thing. And maybe we're all absorbed and cycling in the narrative. That's like our, our comfort animal. Are you like, saying we're all, we're all absorbed in explicitly fictional narrative explicitly fictional narrative or or some of them are like documentaries like back to the trauma porn like why is it that like abuse documentaries are so fucking hot right now yeah i would say what defines us right now is not like fiction so much as it i think like true crime in all of its forms there we go and even it's sort of like fictionalized forms like the um uh the landscapers or whatever it's called like it's weird that at this point in time, we have no taste for comedy and we don't know how to make comedy. But what we are looking for is the stories of crime that end with, like you are looking for justice and satisfaction and explanation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, we talked about this a couple of times on the show, the true crime phenomenon. But, but also we were what? talking in terms of us talking about uh, sex in the city. Mm-hmm. Like sex in the city and just like that, to me absolutely is appropriate for revisiting these characters what and just like that is not is a comedy and yeah. that's what the original show 100 percent was really i've only it's, watched the first episode it's at this not point. a fucking comedy i thought the first episode was funny up until the end it, but, but like i was re-watching the first couple of seasons of sex in the city and it's so funny like at the time it seemed like sophisticated and not as jokey because it was single cam but because we were all so used to multi-cam comedies sarah jessica parker is fucking slinging jokes left and right all the time. No, and she's what I always she's like about it. she's lucille ball yes she is she the her her as a comedic actress and yes. the ability to put in like react and stuff and in and in just like that it's like middle age <laughs> it just is not as funny it, like it's a slog and sort of people i mean if anything it's a bunch of people who thought they knew where they were going who don't know where they're going but that's there we go very of the moment yeah, that's, that's what, what it's what it feels like so that's that's a major complicating factor is that feeling of there's no one to lead us through this and say, this is how we're going to deal with this. This is how we're going to purge these demons. Are we doing truth and reconciliation? Are we doing, what are we doing here? And then when you have climate stuff happening and you're like, we're fighting this hard over what was so obviously an insurrection, there's no way we're pulling our shit together to do the things we need to do. It's just like, it just feels, and with COVID, actually one of our listeners, so we've been having amazing conversations on discord because everybody is dealing with this. We have, I mean, a bunch of our listeners have had COVID in the past month as part of this surge. We're all writing about it. We're all managing family and going back to family and family who don't believe in vaccination. And like, we're all dealing with some level of it and layer of it, but our, our official medical, God, what's the word? Correspondent. Correspondent. Um, Dr. Richard Silvera, who's an infectious diseases doctor in New York, is that the only people getting admitted are unvaccinated people. 
And so you're like, when you see these numbers and you're still sitting there having a fight over whether vaccination and like you have some anti-vax or anti-masker being like, drink your own pee. And you're like, oh my God, we're never fixing these no, problems. No, my parents like, are medical, <laughs> like lifetime medical professionals. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. They, and they're all vaxxed and boosted and all that stuff. But even they will be like, you can't force people to get vaccinated. People have the right to do what they want. Oh and you're God. like, oh you, you understand. I like had this conversation with them. It's like, but you also understand how what they do affects other people. Well, everything you do affects other people. Oh blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, but you know, you understand the medical principles here. Stop acting like you don't. There was this case that we learned about in law school that was like, I don't think it was the 1906 By the fire. Way, guy went to law school before he became a very successful comedian. <laughs> uh, but I do nothing with it except for bringing it up on podcast now. <laughs> but it was like fires raging through San Francisco. The mayor of San Francisco goes and blows up an entire block of houses to act as a fire break. And in the heads of me and my fellow students, it was like, you have to pay them for, like, that can't be okay. And the answer was, no, it's a fucking fire that's going through the city. And you have to do something to save the city because otherwise everything's going to burn down. Yeah, their houses were going to go. Yeah. And like, regardless, the, the notion of like, this is the thing that government is there for. And also, but also just like, one of the things that's so hard about this time is like, the libertarianism in Americans goes so deep that like even when it comes to saving your life people are like but no my liberty and my way of looking at things i'll but, die if i want to i mean this is going to be more incendiary than a person should say on this podcast but like the fact that socialism as we have it now in america is a bunch of people saying well if you won't cooperate with my way i'm not going to do it your way it's like the fucking point of socialism is that we work together and we find compromises and if you have a socialism that doesn't have space for compromises you're not going to be able to work with a mass of people and i just think that everyone in america thinks not that they might be a billionaire but they might be howard rourke or whatever the guy's name is from the fountainhead oh it's like going off to their colorado valley to not play the game and i'm just it's it is so reflective of how much plenty we have that we are able to be this dumb in this dangerous of a situation yeah this major complicating factor in all of it is covid that yeah. COVID started during Trump and it was very easy to look at what he was doing wrong <laughs> like, and be like, he's doing everything wrong and we could see that. But even with the change of regime, there's only so much we could do. Like at first it seemed like, oh, the vaccinations are coming. The, the initial rollout under Trump was fumbled, but then Biden took over and it seemed like, okay. But there are certain things that are just beyond anyone's control like you know like the variant like the like variant variant and that ugh, that is really emotionally sort of prolonging a kind of trauma it's its own trauma yeah. it's this like not knowing you cannot make plans can i ha can i plan a vacation can i plan a trip to visit family can oh, i plan can i plan work i'm about to go to north carolina for yep. a month and like i don't know if the thing they're bringing me out for is something we will be able to do. Yeah. I'm like, all right. Yeah. I'll just go. Let's just, let's I, see. Whatever, <laughs> like, am I going to be going into an office or not? If it's work you have to do in person, will you be able to do it? it? 
it you just don't know. Um, did you guys read the Laura Ingle Wilder's books? Yes, I did. Oh, yes, I did all of them. And I read the two books about her daughter, who is the <laughs> founder of libertarianism. Oh, seriously? Oh, for real. Rose Wilder Lane. And she ran all of Laura Ingalls Wilder's books through her typewriter. She was a journalist. Yeah. And so all of the stuff, there was a, all kinds of socialism, populism stuff in there that yeah. she polished out of those books. Did you read really? them? Really? Mm-hmm. I watched Little House on the Prairie. No, 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 series. no, no. I just would like I to. Re- I would like to briefly recount one incident. During, I think it's the long winter when mm-hmm. things were bad. The dad went out to shoot a goose for like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and then Laura and her sister got into a fight about whether it was going to be sage stuffing or onion stuffing. Huge, huge fight. And then eventually, their mother was just like, he's not going to get a goose. <laughs> and then he comes home, and he doesn't have a goose. By the shores of Silver Lake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just feel like, I just feel like we as, we feel so powerless that we are fighting over what kind of stuffing and not able to deal with the Absolutely. fact that he's not going to get a goose. <laughs> So then I feel like, what are we doing here? I mean, Guy brought this up, like, how do I do comedy? What are we here to ruin? I feel like our framework of the podcast being like, we're ruining things people love depends on some kind of stable culture that we destabilize to say, these are the assumptions underneath this culture that you like. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do a deep dive, connect it to history, root it. And like right now, it's kind of like, uh yeah (laughs) what's our job here because when i think about doing a political episode i'm also like uh i'm not gonna sit here talking about like by they're all just on the hill trying to work things out i don't fucking know like right what what do you even talk about i so i've been experiencing this uh, to different extents since 2016 because what i was making my comic which was sort of at that time, very sort of topical. I was addressing uh, through superhero parody and not very subtly current issues. And then Trump won the election and it just felt like everything came crashing down in very many respects. But specifically creatively, it was like, I don't know how to go forward with this. I remember you specifically talking about the issue of he was such a huge issue, such a huge figure dominating things. And you didn't want to directly address him as an idea. Yeah. But also it became like unfeasible. Like there, you there, can't there, not. You can't, you can't not. You can't not address it. But also to me, making a parody or um, a comic where you do a caricature of Trump. And look, I'm not judging all the great editorial cartoonists who have done that. I couldn't do it. I felt like it was diminishing uh, the ways in which he was abnormal. If you, That's a normal thing. Editorial cartoonists make caricatures of political figures. That's the normal course of events. And if you do that with him, you're normalizing him. It's contradictory. It, it feels paradoxical. But like to parody... A, a, a political figure is also to normalize and to say this is part of our normal course of events. There's there's power and we're going to speak truth to power. But this was something so different. This person so different and, and so inappropriate for this position and this whole situation was so wrong that to, to, to do any kind of 
regular forms of satire felt like it, it wouldn't really do the job. And I also feel like in terms of culture, right now what's really hard is I feel like when we ruin stuff people love and what's challenging about that is that I think it really depended on a life that people are living and the sort of coalescing of viewers around a certain piece of culture that we can then speak to, like, what are the forces behind the mm -hmm. appeal of that? Mm -hmm. Right now, I think people's lives are ingesting culture. Yes. And so it's hard to be like, what are we even going to pick to talk about? Like, we could talk about all these various different shows, but it's like everybody has their niche audience. scattered. And it's very scattered, and it's hard to be like, where are we all at to talk about where this connects to a, like, right. a, a longer right. history? I mean, there, there's also just profoundly complex, like, energies that govern all of this stuff. We, the way that we watch stuff is so fragmented you're not living in the same world as anybody else. We do not go to the same places to watch things together. But also at the same time, suddenly I find out a strange one-seventh of everyone I know has been watching the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen videos before it all <laughs> blows up. Or when like yeah. seven gay friends and I had all been watching the first season of Mad About You. And like I think that there are ways that we are culturally reaching for the same things, yeah. but don't have oh, stuff God, there so to tell us that tell we are. Tell us about comedy, though. I yeah, want to yeah, know. Yeah. Wait, that's, I wanna... Pick up on what you were saying earlier about... Uh, the difficulty of doing comedy. I mean, it's very similar to the thing that you were saying of just how do I comment on something that is... Oh, I mean, my line has always been... I tried to make a joke about it, about how you can't do Holocaust jokes during the Holocaust. Um, right. And I had, a, I had an act out for it that was the most inappropriate. Um, you want to do it now? I th okay, here's what it is. I believe it is from a joke that is based on a joke that you told me. Um, uh, hey, Shlomo, what's the difference between a Jew and a pizza? I don't know, Yitzhak. I'm too busy burning to death. Right. right. <laughs> like, j just the idea of um, what are you... <laughs> What are you supposed to say when all you should be saying is fire, get out of here, or like yeah. we, we have to fix this? And I feel like, we, like we spent such a long time looking for justice and correctness in the things that people were saying. And I feel like over the course of the past five years, we've sort of been like grasping for, you know, someone to say something, but like. You know, when John Mulaney did his big thing about how Trump was like a horse in a hospital. I was it, just thinking yeah. about that. I was literally I just about this it. bit. Oh, my God. It is like when you were talking about your your mm -hmm. comic, I was like, he's talking about how like Trump is like a horse in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And like you can't talk about it because there's a horse in a hospital. And it's like. <laughs> but And the thing is, it's like, it, but it's still not enough. It's still not right. enough to capture. It's still not enough to wrap your head around a majority of this country or like close to a majority of this country was like, sure, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, right. And I didn't know how to comment on it. I didn't know where I was within well, it. You, first of all, you can't satirize something that's already like self parody, right? You can't yep. parody something that, I mean, I've talked about this before with this project I did about guns and the gun debate, where we interviewed people along the whole spectrum of the gun debate and then made art objects that responded to their cultural imaginary. 
and we realized any art object we could make that would be satirical is already being sincerely made and sold by the gun industry. So like (laughs) they make, they make targets that are Obama or ex-girlfriend shaped that bleed when you hit that. Like it's like at a certain point you're like, oh, I can't even make it. Like you can't parody it because it's already (laughs) real. Yeah. that's what Trump was. And that's what the whole situation was. It it was like, I can't, and it's not just, you don't even have to be working in parody. Like with comedy, it's like, how do you, what's funny? (laughs) What's funny right now? But also, I mean, the thing is, is like comedy always needs to end in a place of some optimism. There needs, like however Mm -hmm. dark it is, there needs to be some optimism. You know, like, I mean, the great Mel Brooks line, like, um, like comedy is when somebody falls through an open grate and dies. Tragedy is when like I cut my finger that like, you know, that yeah. like yeah. The, 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 jo- the glory of dark comedy is at least it's not happening to me. And the thing is, is like, it was uh, happening to all of it us. It was happening to all of us. And there wasn't an end in sight. There wasn't a, yeah, that, this that, will that's get fixed. really well said. I think you've hit on something that I wasn't able to put my finger on, which, which is that idea of like, in the act of satirizing and commenting comically, speaking truth to power, all of that stuff, there is this underlying assumption of like, we can do better, we can do better. And this didn't, this whole situation with Trump wasn't like that because of course we can do better, but it was like, this is an emergency. This is not okay. This is not normal and it's not acceptable. And like almost half the country are, probably more than half the country are either in the camp of this is great or at least this is fine. Like, well, but I think that that's also part of what's hard is that he went away, but Trumpism hasn't gone away. And so we're, we're in -hmm. the face of this surreal spectacle where Trump is saying, DeSantis, why don't you get vaccinated? And you're like, Oh my God, I can't. This this is crazy. And that, that is the thing that is so interesting is that he is this overwhelming charismatic figure representative of something. Mm -hmm. But the things that's scary is not him. It is the hundred million people who let it happen. The hundred million people whose view of democracy is like, Christian nationalism, as you were talking about yesterday. And the cynical politicians who are like, let's get rid of Trump, but how can I get that Trumpism? And you're like, oh, Yeah, no, the people who during the election said all the things that were true about Trump, and then as soon as it was clear he was going to be the nominee, it was like, well, we support him now, and and all that shit. I don't even want to get into like how craven and just evil that is. Like, those figures are worse than Trump to me. Any Ted day. Cruz, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Tucker like Carlson, Mitch McConnell to me is the Ron DeSantis. But 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 <laughs> that's why in the comic, um, instead of parodying Trump, I I created the base, which was like this toxic slime ball that sort of represents Trumpism. It's like I don't give a shit about Trump. He's just some fucking con artist. He's this two bit fucking con artist, slumlord, racist, dumbass, narcissist who fucking, by uh, virtue of being tall and I don't know, like too stupid to know but his also own limitations. the celebrity of the eighties and the nineties yeah, and yeah, kind yeah. of what he represented in this kind of yeah. big outsized figure. And he's this PT Barnum, like he he yeah. understood that and knew how to manipulate that and whatever. He's nothing. It's the Mitch McConnell's and, and all of those folks would for their own their for their own agenda would be like 
totally willing to back this guy and that you would have people like my fucking parents looking at this and being like, this is okay. We don't love this, but it's okay because it's better than the Democrats and not, and like losing their perspective so wildly. And then, you know, not to mention all of the fucking like type of people that invaded the Capitol, like all the insurrection, like the people who are really hardcore yeah, this person speaks for us. This is the the world they live in is so different from anything we know. And there's so many of them. And it just is terrifying. You know, you know what what got me this weekend? I was listening to, uh, I hadn't listened to this American life in a while. And they had a, an episode called talking while black. And it starts with this principal who as, as, March for Black Lives was happening, was getting all of these emails from people, this outpouring from white people in and around his life who were like, we we fit, we get it, we understand now, we're supporting you. And he wrote this email back, this very heartfelt email. I've never had this kind of support. And then not a year later, you have the anti-CRT stuff and he got fired by his school district. He was the principal, he was a for, good one. For advocating CRT. For black, yeah, or for being racist because he was black and anti-white and I listened I was like 10 minutes into the episode and I got so angry because the backlash against March for Black Lives which felt like it was something because in its moment it felt like it could be and then not a year later the doubling down in all of these communities of this anti-CRT thing I I felt like I like I this was just a few days I was like I get I give up I I just I couldn't listen to the episode I was so angry but we are at the point where, like, speaking of, like, doubling down on their shit, they are literally killing themselves, which oh yeah, is not the part that bothers me, to be quite frank. But if you look at COVID deaths county by county and how those counties voted, you know, it's not exactly 100% scientific, but we can comfortably say that the majority of people dying are Trump supporters. It is people dying so that they don't have to feel bad like it is yeah they're they're dying so that they can define themselves in opposition to something truly it is people who don't want to agree that it's not 1988 anymore um like whether it's as simple as having to wear a mask whether it is as simple as having to accept television that isn't all white people like yeah it goes back to what Maya was saying a moment ago about Trump talking about, well, I'm vaccinated, you shall get vaccinated, and getting booed by mm-hmm. his own people. Mm-hmm. That's fucking while, while fascinating. While Ron DeSantis is like wheezing and like, yeah, <gasps> yeah. And clearly he's like, people are like, where's Ron DeSantis during this Omicron surge where he's gone for three weeks? And then when he's back, he's clearly like post COVID, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <gasps> and you're like, right. oh my God. Well, it, it, um, I recall when we were in the midst of 2020 COVID and Trump was still in office thinking at least the the vaccine is getting developed and the vaccine mm-hmm. will get developed and then Trump will fucking take credit for it. But what will happen is everything will go back to normal because everyone will get vaccinated and we'll, mm-hmm. like I knew there was a serious danger of variants. Like anyone who's paying attention knew there was going to be variants, but I really thought it was good that Trump would take credit for the vaccines and his people 
who were like, no shutdowns, no masks. This is this is like uh, infringing on my freedoms would then get vaccinated like that. That's what they were holding out for. But then they they somehow veered into this anti-vax thing. And I know how the how is Democrats are for this. The liberals or whatever are for this. The people who I'm against and I define myself as being against them are for this. They're from against it. And Trump himself couldn't sell. Like Mr. Conman could not sell to them the idea of the Trump vaccine and still can't because this is more powerful to them. I think one of the reasons that we are experiencing this ennui is having to accept that, well, there isn't a going back to normal, that this doesn't get over and then we have March 17th, 2020, that we are going to be two years older, if not more, like we're going to go into a world where things work differently. And I think what's so hard about that is all all of these people who wanted to be 1988, who wanted to be 1954, are not admitting that there is a problem. And so they're not able to go past the problem. And I think for us, people who are able to sort of like accept these things, we're having to acknowledge how much we benefited from a big institution, set of, a set of institutions with a huge amount of inertia to have the idea that things will be okay because of them and sort of mm-hmm. realizing that like, well, we're going to have to do work. We can't just run things. We also have to make things and do things. Like you can't just say all of the candidates who are bad, you're going to have to figure out a candidate who's good. Yeah, but you we know? figured, we did figure that out during the Trump years. Like we got active and we got in there, but there is an extent to which that was fucking exhausting. And there's and a point where you're like, can I just, can I just rest? Well, and it was also littler than what's going to have to happen yeah, now because yeah. it was fixing a machine that was already working. Well, now we're, we're a little the bit going to have to, maybe yeah. yeah. So then my question is, and, and cause we're, we're running out of time is then Rebecca, what are we doing? No, I feel no. no I've been asking it's, it's myself kind of like, that question for because, several years because now. I love our listeners and I love our conversations. But I feel like, like what's the what's the thing that's going to bring us to the table every week and feel like we're we're doing something that we can feel like like it means something. Yeah, like, like it's making a difference. Well. That was a piece of, that's been a piece of my creative frustrations for the past several years, which mm. which is that prior to 2016, I had built up in myself the idea that, you know, maybe I'm just making silly cartoons, but that I'm, I'm changing the conversation. I'm, uh, I'm making a small difference in a certain way. A- and I still kind of believe in that. Like, look at something like um, Ellen coming out in the 90s. We're not going to say she single-handedly created gay rights. It was an ongoing process that has been going on for decades, and we have many people who have really worked hard and suffered. But she made a difference. She got a lot of people to think differently about this issue. A lot of people who didn't know or know that they knew a gay person in their lives now knew a gay person parasocially. 
and that still is meaningful. I do think that changing the conversation matters. But that it doesn't mean, like, I, I, okay, I think of our role. I have, in the past few years, thought of our role more in terms of being an outlet for people. Mm-hmm. That it's not so much that we're going to, like, change things and and give people a new way of understanding the world that's going to transform everything. But more like, there's a lot of people who are feeling what we are feeling. Mm-hmm. Or similar things to what we are feeling. And... They need some sense of, number one, just camaraderie and community and a sense of, like, they are not alone. And we can do that. But also, I think we, specifically in what we do, kind of help people parse some of what they're witnessing and kind of understanding but maybe can't articulate. It's gratifying to... I hope at least to our listeners, it's gratifying to hear someone say like, you're not totally bananas. What you're experiencing is real and here's why we think it's happening. And um, what you're perceiving about these various media on some level is real. And also maybe weren't perceiving, but it's there too, but it's good to know. I, I don't know. It's, it, to me, it's more about building that community and uh, a sense of uh that you're what you're experiencing is real just let him know it's real join our patreon <laughs> i mean it's true first of all that's true and i'm seeing a lot of that um and our listeners talking about how like it's so nice to come here to yeah. the saw speakeasy and just have a place to go where yeah. as i'm dealing with these in-laws or i'm dealing with yeah, these, if that's that, the least i can do if that's the least we can do well, i'm I, happy to provide I think we're that. doing that i think and actually i thought we did a lot of really i think we did some of our best episodes that we've ever done in 2021 i went through our episodes for the year we did some great shit um i think that part of it is just that yeah we're not all watching the same thing or or we can't just wait for those moments where we are like i remember when nanette came out which was the first episode uh guy was on with us the number of people who had said to me could you talk about nanette because mm-hmm. everybody was watching it and everybody was like, I know I'm supposed to like this, but there's something and I'm not quite sure. And we were able to like tease that apart. And I feel like right now we might have fewer of those anchor pe- like yeah. yeah, those anchor those anchors of culture. So then it's kind of like, what do we do in the meantime? Or what do we like anchor ourselves to talk about in That's the meantime? That's a really good point. And I hadn't thought about it, but it is absolutely a factor in my not uh, presenting as being as excited about the podcast as I could. Part of it is like, I don't know what to talk about each week. I want to talk about stuff, but um, I don't know what is the thing. I, I would say there is another factor here and it is like you guys doing this and like what, I miss having a podcast because it was once every week I went and talked to four people, three people I really enjoyed and respected about something. And I made myself watch something and I made myself research and it is just for each other. I think Mm. to, to make yourself do that and make your self care uh, like about if it's a TV show, I fucking loved you guys running Christmas so much. <laughs> it made me think about Christmas in ways like the, I said it to you guys last night, but like blew my mind to realize that 
the centrality of like life from conception is rooted in the story of Christ. I hadn't thought about that before. And it's like making yourself do the work of being a smart person every week is great for a community, but it's also good for yourself. That is true. Especially for me, because I will, I will just like play Zelda and um, this knockoff Wordle that I've discovered that you can just continuously play, unlike Wordle, which is once a day. Have you done Wordle, Maya? I have just in the past five days started Wordle, and it is once a day, and I'm very glad it's only once a day, and yeah. I don't want to know. I don't want to know <laughs> about your I won't send you don't the link because I, I'm obsessed with Please it. Do not. Also, but is I, there some way that you guys could run Wordle? Because that is a touchstone of culture right What now. is going on with Wordle? People okay. love Wordle. I mean, I actually could. I think I have discovered a method to always solve it within four okay we'll talk about this next week next week <laughs> next week wordle and we also have like a bunch of i mean i think one thing like the oscars this year because we are all stuck at home watching movies like i think we definitely have things to talk about including having guy brandon back but i feel like yeah there is something about like maybe we can just have space where like we just get together and just talk about shit and we don't always have to have like an anchor topic. Hmm. Mm. Okay. I am willing to consider that. All right, listeners, how do you feel about us just getting together and shooting the shit? <laughs> also, listeners, I want to thank our listeners, particularly our patrons. I can tell you that when I was dealing with Omicron, being able to go on Discord and go on to the Sauce Speakeasy and seeing how everybody was doing, and it was really great. I love you guys. I meant to ask you, by the way, mm. when you did get COVID mm -hmm. recently, did you feel like, I don't know, like you made it all the way through a video game almost to the final level and just like got killed by the dumbest thing right before you met the uh, big boss yeah, or something? Yeah, particularly because I don't know how the fuck I got it. Nobody else in my family got it. It was like just me. And I'm like, this is some bullshit. So there's part of it that felt like that. And the other part of it felt like, fuck it, I'm through. I now have yeah. the baddest bitch <laughs> antibodies. I am Moderna times three no, plus I Omicron. If I were here, kiss my if ass. I lived in the same town as you, I would have come over and had a COVID party. Actually, I think I, we need to talk about the 18 hours of David Lynch that I watched during I, Omicron. I'd rather not if we oh, could avoid God, it. Well, that's what we're going to have to tell. The, the, Thank you, Guy, for oh, being guy. our guest. Thank you for having me. Also, we are still going to get to your topic because I think it is major Oscar important, especially this year, because I fucking hated Power of the Dog and we have to talk Guy about Guy wants to talk about gay Oscar bait, as he puts it. So that will be an episode shortly. If you are interested in joining the conversation on our Discord, the Sauce Speak Easy, come to patreon.com slash saucepodcast and check out the different membership levels. All members of our Patreon get to join the Sauce Speakeasy. Higher pledge levels, you get bonus material. Also, if you have things to tell us about Trump trauma and the particular ennui and the textures of that that you're experiencing. Yeah, how it's affecting your life, how you're dealing with it. Please write us at saucepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of the socials at saucepodcast. You can reach me directly as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. You can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz's. Guy, where can they find you? That's I right. Am, I am at Guy Branham across all social media. Uh, you can go to GuyBranham.com. 
to learn about my upcoming uh, dates. Uh, if you are in Corvallis, Oregon, I am doing a show on June 7th. And here in Los Angeles, I'm doing the first hour I have done since before COVID on April 29th at uh, Dynasty Typewriter. So please, buy your tickets. They're available oh, tickets now. I am are still available. And if you're there, I will be there. So come on out. We'll have a sauce reunion. What else are you working on, Guy, that people should check out? I'm currently writing on The History of the World Part 2 with Nick Kroll and Ike so Barinholtz, so um, which is very exciting. Oh, and... Um, I just finished uh, shooting the, the movie Bros with Billy Eichner, and that is coming out in August. So if you hear about Billy Eichner's gay movie, you should be like, Guy from The Sauce is in that. I'm going to go see that. That's right. And you can find Guy's book, his memoir, oh, My Life as a Goddess. My book, My Life as a Goddess, is, is available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was very fun. Adios, amoebas. Adios, amoebas.